Hello everyone, so happy to have you with me for Talk Racing to Me with Naomi, your host as usual, episode 63. Now, as 2021 has drawn to a close, we leave behind an eventful year in horse racing, but we also look with hope towards the new year. And I wanted to go over some of the current challenges as well as possible initiatives that might shape the 2022nd racing year. And I believe I have found just a person to do so with. I put many a topic in question in front of Pat Cummings, Executive Director of the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation. And after this show, I hope that you'll walk away a little the wiser when it comes to certain terms and, and possible ideas to improve the industry, as well as why both Pat and I are dedicated to the continuation of this great game. I wanted to have a, a frank discussion about events as well as initiatives and laws that are front and center of the racing industry and, and will continue to play a role throughout this year. Now, Pat graciously explained terms, situations, as well as providing a hopeful view towards solutions or ideas that could aid our sport. Very warm welcome to Pat Cummings. Pat, this is the first time I've had you on talk racing to me with Naomi. Now we've worked together on a couple of other things. I'm very glad you've made the time uh, to join us today. How are you doing and where can we find you? I am in Lexington, Kentucky today. Uh, I always think it's a great question to start podcast to Naomi, so thanks. It just puts a little perspective on where mm-hmm. where people are and what they're doing. Um, I, I had a, a bit of travel at the end of, of 2021, but I've, I've been firmly ensconced here at home in Lexington and, and will be here for you know, a month or two probably. So uh, yeah, it's, uh, it is seasonably cool here and uh, you know, just uh, looking forward to the chat. Oh, I bet it's cold. It's, I remember when I was in Lexington with the Good Off and Flying Star, and um, pretty sure I wore like at least six layers, something like it that. It can it can be bitter. It can be. Um, you you get those uh, you get those Arctic blasts that really hit Chicago, and they sometimes just come in and and point down uh, kind of sharply here into into central Kentucky, and and we've had a couple nice cold blasts and some snow and. Um, but it, look, it's, I, I love living here. Um, I, I used to joke about living in Hong Kong for three years. There were two climates, um, oppressive and non-oppressive. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, it, it's nice to be back in four season territory. Oh, and, and do you do well with the cold then? Because I know personally, I, handle it I fine. don't. Yeah. Okay. No, I handle it fine. Yeah. And you mentioned Hong Kong. Was that by any chance, uh, where you... We're traveling to uh, at the end of 2021. No, no, no. I haven't. I haven't been since uh, August of 2019, and um, just I've been exclusively domestic uh, since the pandemic uh, kicked in. And um, but hey, I'm um, you know look forward to getting back when I can. Uh, right now, of course, Hong Kong has some of the world's most uh, onerous quarantine requirements. It's really, really tough. I know from a racing standpoint, they've done a tremendous job to keep things going. But, you know, for example, um, the, the Hong Kong Jockey Club uh, shut out the media, 
basically because the government required it mm-hmm. for the first time. Um, I want to say it was uh, January 12th. It was the first time they, they had never, there were no media. It was only the club's own media channels. And having run the public affairs department for racing in, in the Hong Kong Jockey Club, I could only imagine um, what they had to deal with to be able to make it work because it has such a dynamic racing media market. Um, 21 newspapers at the time when I was there, maybe it's a few, a bit fewer now with more, more shifting online, but it's, it's a really serious media business. It was incredibly exciting to work in that space, uh, and, and to, to deal with the press, um, and to facilitate for them. It was so cool. I know I saw you there. Um, I think it's probably the first place we had met, um, in Do you believe it was, um, it's it's a great spot and and it is still a place that that you know, I I frequent I patronize myself with 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 betting. Um, it, it's where I'd say it probably gets the majority of my wagering focus outside of big race days of the year. I really enjoy the the product day in and day out for all of the reasons of why we advocate for things at Thoroughbred Idea Foundation to to. Um, to improve uh, so many elements of the sport, you know, we're, we're really trying to take the best of what Hong Kong does and find ways to adapt it into the American marketplace. Well, and I think that is also perhaps the way forward for certain aspects of the racing industry here in the U.S. Like I can tell that sometimes when I look at, you know, other racing cultures, like I was in Australia for a while too, and like you mentioned, it was in Hong Kong. I look at the little things they do and think, how can we apply that here to make it better for all involved so on, on a variety of levels. So yes, I'm so happy that you're here with us today because as you highlighted, or as you already kind of hinted at, I think, with the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation, you are looking at improving the thoroughbred racing industry locally. And uh, as we've just kicked off 2022, I was about to say 2021, oh my God. <laughs> um, I would love to have a look at some of the possible ideas, initiatives, but also challenges that we will be facing locally and perhaps uh, across the globe. We'll keep that sort of international sprinkle uh, involved here. And as you're the executive director of the Third Red Idea Foundation, I kind of wanted to just start by perhaps asking you what it is that the Third Red Idea Foundation does and what might be on the agenda in terms of your research this year. Yeah, so I'll start with that, and then I'll get into more of the kind of the the domestic um, issues and, and ideas and, and initiatives, and, and then I'll spread international from there. But the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation was the brainchild of Craig Burnick of Glen Hill Farm. Um, he has been, you know, the, the absolute driving force behind it for now. We're into our fourth year, and the whole goal was to advocate for. Those who exclusively um, fund the sport through their own voluntary participation, horse owners and horse players, and to do so in areas that were a little bit beyond the the regular public scope. Um, The focus back in 2018 in particular, and to some degree, I mean, it still is, is is things relative to, say, the authority that we have, you know, forthcoming with the Horse Racing Integrity Safety Authority and Lasix and medication and everything. And Craig's main frustration at the time was, we've got a lot of other issues too. And here was my availability coming out of Hong Kong, and and it was a perfect... um, 
it was a perfect uh, alliance to, to work together with Craig. And, and we started from scratch. And, and our idea at the time was to publish several foundational white papers, reports, right, publications that outline some of our main fundamental tenets. We thought and continue to do that, you know, if you can improve racing in four or five key areas, uh, for primarily horse players, you make mm-hmm. the sport better for horse players. It's better for everyone else too, right? There, there is a trickle down. You, you, you increase horse player participation. You make the sport friendlier for them. You will make it better for everyone else who participates. So, it was issues like pricing, uh, bed pricing, takeout. Um, our our first paper that we we published this was in in late 2018 was on the topic of breakage tote breakage the rounding down of winning dividends a, yeah. pr- a paramutual practice that has taken place for essentially ever um and you know trying to to get some movement in that direction to loosen the grip of rounding down winning dividends to a dime the technology is there you don't have to do it most of our play is on account, continues to be, pandemic has only exacerbated that um, in a good way, right? Um, and we're finally getting some movement on this uh, with a bill that's going to come up in the Kentucky legislature to shift breakage from the dime to the penny. And hopefully that will will come through. It's part of a, of, of a greater bill that, that's being uh, forthcoming uh, from uh, Chairman Adam Koenig of the Licensing Occupation Administrative Regulation Committee in the Kentucky Legislature. Uh, so raising attention to pricing, uh, transparency, uh, improving stewards reporting, for example, yeah. um, adopting interference rules that are far, far friendlier and far more understanding uh, to horse players, the Category 1 standard that's in place pretty much in every developed racing country with the exception of the U.S. and Canada. Uh, it has been adopted globally by the main Tier 1 racing jurisdictions. That is, uh, it's an ongoing effort. I'm very hopeful that we'll have some movement on that in 2022 in the U.S., maybe Canada. Uh, but again, it's it's a slow road, and it's, it's one we continue to, to work on. We've advocated for stewards reporting. Uh, since that began, you know, we... we really tackle that in 2019, there have been improvements. Uh, Now, the reporting that we do in this country, and it's done state by state, in some cases, track by track, stewards publishing a report at the end of the day that talks about the matters of the day. Unfortunately, what we have now in America is either nothing, which is terrible, or something, which is still substandard. And that something is typically... Here's why we demoted a horse with a very rudimentary explanation, talking about claims or why a race got delayed a little bit. It doesn't really go into the real nitty gritty of, a, of an international stewards report, the likes of which are stock standard in everywhere from South Australia to South Africa, from Dubai to Doombin, uh, and, and all points in between. Um, the rest of the world does this day in and day out. We don't. And there's a lot of value that can come with that. Uh, and we continue to, to try and, and, and push uh, 
uh, racing jurisdictions to adopt that and to become more communicative. Um, we have always been, you know, very supportive of of getting more information into the space, free data. Uh, that has been a far tougher road, probably the toughest of all that we've had, uh, because that data is mostly controlled by Equibase, and it's it's a very tough nut to crack for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but we continue to believe fundamentally that the more data, the more accurate it is, the more of it that is provided in usable, friendly formats to uh, customers far and wide, the better. Um, the, 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 the past of, of uh, past performances in PDF formats that if you, if you provided them to someone who knows nothing about horse racing today and you asked them to look at them, would, would literally think you were giving them something written in a foreign language. Um, that is not ideal for a modern customer in trying to attract new people. Uh, to racing. Um, the reality is they don't want paper, of course, right? They don't, they don't want printable PDFs. Mm-hmm. They want um, neural networks. They want sortable data sets. They want CSV files. They want uh, APIs that they can tap into. And if it means they have to register and pay a nominal fee, um, th- that's, that's okay. Right. I think people want that. So, so we continue to push in that direction. Uh, I, I don't think we'll see much movement on that anytime soon, but uh, the others, I, I really do think we will. Um, we have also been very, very positive on the spread and the addition of fixed odds uh, to complement our existing paramutual offerings. This is a little bit of controversy attached to it. Uh, not everyone gets it or some those who do are fearful of it for a variety of reasons, frankly, all of which I understand. Um, but this is about presenting a modern betting option to parallel our existing betting options. We think we help make paramutual wagering better by offering other options alongside it, offering fixed odds. If we can do that too, over time, we get a, a hopefully a proper exchange and you have really a third tier of betting that, that, that comes on board. But we need to find ways to grow our business. And that's really all we're about. We're to find ways to grow wagering on racing uh, and getting onto fixed odds betting platforms, corporate bookmakers. There are some issues that come alongside of that. It is not 100% roses all the way, but it is, we think, net positive for the long term of the sport. And I certainly look to a place like Australia. The Australian model is far more embraceable. Than, than what we've seen in some other places. I agree there. Now, before I let you continue, because I have so many questions from just listening to yeah. you. Uh, first, I'll, I'll tap into you discussing fixed odds. Uh, I'm a big um, you know, proposer of that as well. I'm, I'm very much in favor of the addition and indeed uh, making the pie bigger instead of you know slicing it up like perhaps people feel might be the case. You mentioned some of the possible drawbacks. What do you feel are people's initial sort of knee-jerking reactions when you are talking about the introduction of fixed odds? Yeah, I think one of the big concerns, and sometimes it's a little self-serving for whoever raises it, is that uh, there will be some extreme limits placed on those who win. And the paramutual, uh, paramutual betting is wholly democratic, in the sense that anyone can bet anything at any time. 
And in fixed odds, when you're betting with a corporate bookmaker, that corporate bookmaker, uh, it could be FanDuel, it could be DraftKings, uh, it could be, you know, any any number of others, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Twin Spires even, uh, uh, that they have some um, in, in some other states. Um, on, on a sporting event, they may say, you've won a lot, we're going to limit you. Yeah. And that does not ring very true to a lot of people who believe that I should be able to do whatever I want, however I want, and I don't want to be limited. Um, I understand that. Uh, I think everybody does. And, and my good friend, the, the legendary uh, Las Vegas odds maker, Roxy Roxborough says, for as long as there's been betting on anything, winners have been getting limited. But the reality is in the paramutual space, that's not true. Uh, anyone can pitch up and, and, you know, if they want to bet a million dollars, you look at Mattress Mac in the Kentucky Derby, right? Yeah. Um, the red carpet gets rolled out and he comes and he bets through the paramutual system, of course, and, and, uh, was betting essential quality and, and he can put on as much as he wants and he can change the price. Um, but it's not as if, you know, we've allowed the paramutual system to grow holistically here either, right? It, it has clearly become a bit warped. We have given preferred access to our biggest customers, allow them to dump money in in ridiculous amounts at the very last second. So really the only person who knows exactly what price they're getting is the person who's able to get all their bets in at the very last second. Uh, so that is not, you know, we've, we've kind of let, let ourselves go in that space for quite some time. And we've also seen the introduction of, of more and more uh, jackpot style bets, which we are certainly not a fan of, have some work, uh, some research coming forth in that regard in a couple weeks, months. It's an ongoing project we're working on behind the scenes. Um, You know, we, we we want a a healthy betting environment. We want it for uh, all participants. Um, but, you know, undoubtedly, uh, we want more people participating in horse racing. And the paramutual system is not evolving healthily on its own over the last 25 years, all of which have been in the growth of Internet wagering, right? Horse racing has pretty much been the only real betting business which has shrunk with legal online wagering. It's just it's just remarkable to consider it that way, right? Mm-hmm. We we have um, you know the, the the corporate operators of the sport for reasons that are very well known have focused primarily on using racing as a conduit to advance other businesses and not to grow racing. And where the tide seems to be changing, twenty twenty two and onward, I hope some of this is hope and some of it is reality, is that racing has a more valuable asset than it's had in recent years. It has 30,000 races of which maybe 15 to 20,000 are, are really what I would consider, you know, highly bettable, very attractive wagering propositions. Uh, and those can fill all of these online uh, sports books in different States we'd be foolish not to want to get in front of those customers. And the language we have heard from from quite a number of racing executives, particularly huh, the last six months or so, um, but certainly from New Jersey for, for longer, and, and they're, they're obviously the leader in this space, mm-hmm. this is an opportunity um, and, and gives us a chance to really start growing our wagering business. Racing for racing. Kind of novel. 
but uh, this this could be this this really could be good for horse players, for horse people, owners, trainers, breeders, and growing our business, growing that pie. Right? It's we don't have to be exactly. fighting over smaller, shrinking slices, like you said, um, but we can focus on growing it, and that's that to me is really the opportunity and is, has been a real driver of, of why we've been so, so behind it from the start. Yeah. I, b- I believe so that this is indeed that opportunity that could allow for more uh, fans, uh, horse players and hence increased wagering revenue in different areas. So in different ways to, to really fuel that pot and make it bigger within horse racing. Now, before we talked about fixed odds, you mentioned uh, the category one versus category two, how you were looking into that. And, and of course, some of the other um, focal points of your research. Now, the first thing that came up in my mind is when you identify an idea or an area that you're going to investigate, where do you start? But also when you have found that data that makes you think we can make a significant change here, how do you find out which you know, entities one needs to talk to or lobby to actual enact meaningful change. I I learned this um, over over these last three and a half years or so. You never know either where a good idea comes from or who might be able to help you get something moved along the way. Um, I, I present to the Godolphin Flying Start uh, students now, and uh, I, I raise a question. Uh, which is, you know, in light of all of these challenges that horse racing faces, how do you find ways to do this, right? And my answer to, to, to my own hypothetical question is, however you can, right? You you, you just have to 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 go and and push and and knock on any door. Anyone who's peripherally involved in the sport uh, is a potential target to reach out to to discuss matters to try and, and find a, a, a path to improve. And, you know, we're doing this and we have, you know, this has been largely funded through Craig and his generosity and those of mostly our, our, our board of directors who have been great in helping us get to this point. But it, it takes, it's an effort to, um, to keep knocking on the doors to to keep emailing people and and look I've, I've i've been shut down at plenty plenty of turns the, the the one thing about how you do it i would say you try and find conduits try and find stories uh, to latch on to we are not trying to reinvent the wheel here and it's like you said earlier naomi there's great examples to follow everywhere category one shouldn't be controversial everyone else is doing it uh, hypothetically, LASIKs you know, or, or no use of LASIKs on race day should not be controversial. Everyone else in the world is 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 operating without it. Mm-hmm. Um, stewards reporting should not be controversial. It's happening everywhere, granted to various degrees. So we're not coming in and we're, we're, we're saying, let's do something that has never been done in horse racing before, ever. Trying to introduce something that maybe not hasn't been done in the U.S. Uh, we're, we're trying to to find the best examples. Um, I had this discussion with a track operator the other day and talking about stewards and reporting, and I said, "Look, uh, I'll send you a couple examples of some of the stewards reports out of Hong Kong." Now, this represents like 
you know, going for a PhD in stewards reporting. I said, I'm trying to get us to high school diploma, right? If we can get there, then we can go for the college degree. Then we can go for the master's. But we're not going to get to Hong Kong PhD level stewards reporting. I would just like us to get get the basic diploma and let's move on in that regard. And uh, step by step is how you do it, however you can. And uh, it's it's what drives me and those people that help us out, that consult with us. Um, it, it's 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 been a, a team effort. Most of that team is largely unknown, um, you know, out of view. Uh, but 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 it's it has been an effort, and uh, we're um, I think we're starting to have some some greater effect than we did in our early days. I think most of the time, when you just get started, you you try and sort of find find your your way and and find you know the right people to talk to, like you said, but also how to go about selling the ideas that you've you know come across or, or came up with. And I'm glad to hear that you're starting to gain traction. I enjoy reading the reports myself because as a horse racing industry participant, as well as as a fan, I welcome looking at ourselves and saying, hey, how we can, how can we improve and how can we get others on board to see the benefits of doing so? And uh, look, we've got a fair few questions, so I'm, I'm going to move, move along ever so slightly. Um, when we're talking about, we've already mentioned a couple of concepts, actually, when we're talking about certain terms or topics, do you think there are a few that might be of benefit to racing fans and industry players to know more about or to know as we get started with 2022? Yeah, the, the two that come to mind, the one we've already really discussed, which is fixed odds, uh, fixed odds betting for racing, um, everything that, that American racing fans have known about betting on racing for the last nine decades plus it's been paramutual where the odds are set by the, the players themselves and, and uh, how much money is put on each combination in, in fixed odds betting, you look at the odds, the, 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 the prices that are put out by the bookmaker and you take that price uh, you, you, you know, that price is fixed and it's not going to change for you. You're locked into that. So understanding what we're talking about is it, it's a different game. So no longer will we be able to say, um, and this even applies to simulcast racing, right? If you're, if you're, if you're on the Laurel feed and a horse wins at three to one, if, if there's been a deal that's been struck and Laurel is up for simulcast betting to, at fixed odds in New Jersey, some customers may have had four to one mm-hmm. or they may have had five to one. Yeah. Um, and you know, that, that is an opportunity. They also could have had two to one, right? So yeah. it works, it mm-hmm. works many different ways. Um, and it's something for those that, that maybe um, aren't as familiar with it. Uh, they will become more familiar, especially given where things have been in the, in the sports betting uh, landscape and, and continues to grow. The, I would say this, the term integrity gets thrown around a lot uh, and it has some very different meanings, you know, in terms of the new horse racing integrity and safety authority, there's an understanding of what integrity is. It's mostly focused on uh, anti-doping medication control, racetrack safety issues and, and integrity in that regard. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to see a future of racing where there needs to be a much greater focus, and this will evolve, 
of, of how you understand integrity from a purely wagering standpoint, from how information is transferred, made official, uh, communicated to players, uh, the, the greater public. Uh, there will be a, a rising demand for more of it, and that demand will come from third-party operators on behalf of their businesses and the players who play with those bookmakers to demand more information about American racing. So we don't have stewards talking face-to-face with jockeys after every race. Naomi, I know you've been all over the world with racing. You know how in Australia, in Dubai, in Europe, jockeys go in and face the stewards after every race. They talk about their, their ride, what happened. They answer questions. Sometimes they feel very under the, under the gun mm-hmm. of the stewards oh, yeah. to, to explain themselves face-to-face every day during the race day. Doesn't happen here. Um, and those, that reporting level, uh, I, I think we're going to start to see uh, a, a, an increased focus on information, the integrity of it, how it gets out into the public sphere, how it's controlled, how we report scratches, how we report overweights, um, how we report veterinary information, right? It's very difficult to determine today um, in, in many states who bled, right? So so if, if a horse bleeds through Lasix or without it, it's very difficult to get an answer. Um, that sort of thing, I, I think we're going to start to see that um, business will push us down the road to understand that uh, we need more integrity in information, information delivery, uh, the, the greater wagering space, and, and that will be good for customers. It will come with pain along the way uh, of, of it, you know, implementing new systems, new procedures, new policies, but it'll happen. And we need to start thinking about integrity that goes far beyond what is administered or not administered via a syringe. It, it, you know, integrity does not come alone at what you do with the, the, the prick of a, of a syringe. So um, you know, the rest of the world does this pretty well, and I think it, it's high time that we start to, to do it too. Yeah, I think you gave a really good explanation of what the umbrella term of integrity might mean moving forward and everything you mentioned i i agree with that and i hope that we'll find ways of implementing it and streamlining these procedures to allow us here in the us to get to that kind of level that for well probably won't get to the hong kong level but you know we know in hong kong how communicative they are in those kind of areas that you already mentioned uh, before and i think this kind of ties into one of my other uh, points of uh, you know discussion here the horse racing integrity and safety authority and the implementation of the horse racing integrity and safety act would you be able to give somewhat of a brief explanation around the meaning of 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 implementation of that law as well as how the horse racing integrity and safety authority might be able to do so but also how people kind of look at it right now and what people might need to know surrounding this. So we, we've been administering and regulating racing at a state level essentially forever in American 
racing history, right? For for the last you know, hundred years of of really uh, regulated horse racing, it, it, it has been done at an exclusively a state level. It will still be done in a state level for some matters, but the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Authority, provided it withstands several legal challenges to its constitutionality, I tend to think that is more likely than not that it will survive those, uh, will add a a level of federal oversight, uniform federal oversight. Lisa Lazarus was just hired as the first uh, director of uh, or or CEO of the uh, authority. Congratulations to her. I don't know her, Um, but I'm very hopeful for her involvement and and really look forward to to meeting her and and being involved in any way, shape or form with it. But um, it's not as if we've been without regulation. We've just been without federal regulation. Um, it, it, you have to think of it this way. It, it would be, and, and I'm not saying this happens, but right now, if you go from state to state to state, you may be able to walk into a grocery store and buy beer. You may be able to walk into a supermarket and buy a bottle of, uh, Jack Daniels. Um, you may be able to walk into a gas station and do the same, or you may not. And <laughs> the laws of that state govern what you're able to do, right? You're not allowed to pump your own gas in New Jersey and Oregon. Which baffles beca- my mind, but yes. <laughs> because of the rules of that state, mm-hmm. right? And and so now there is a, there is, uh, the federal government has gotten involved in this for many reasons, which are easily researchable. And, and said, um, you know, we're through, uh, you know, this private, organization is going to be established. It's going to report to a federal agency. That's the Federal Trade Commission under the Department of Commerce. And we're going to regulate some of this in a uniform fashion. Uh, I think long-term, that's a good thing for horse racing. Comes with a lot of hiccups, a lot of burden. But I think it's good that the federal government has stepped in. It's good for horse racing's long-term future that the federal government has come in and said, we want a piece of this. It will be expensive. And there's a lot of infighting from a lot of organizations uh, battling around about this, and rightly so, mind you. But dealing with, you know, there, this is a sausage-making process, Naomi, right? It, it, mm-hmm. It's a, um, it's not pretty. We all, I think, kind of want the finished product, we're not really interested, um, and we don't want to have to watch. And I've I've been in a couple of rooms, in some public rooms, where, you know, there's been a lot of loud voices and bickering and um, grandstanding about the authority. But it's reality. It's law. Um, it may face these additional, you know, legal challenges, and those challenges could get more burdensome over time. We'll see. Uh, but it's I think it's it's exciting for the sport. Um, to go through this process and we'll see what, what comes out the other end. Um, I can tell you now that by looking at the, the projected early uh, regulations on some of the matters, they're not perfect. They're a starting point. This will be an evolution. Um, but I do think that from the perspective of horse players, more oversight on horse racing is good. 
and horse players want it. They want to be as confident as they can in the investments they make in the outcomes of the races. And the majority of the people who are arguing or bickering about the outcome and how HISA is created and the rules thereof are mostly speaking exclusively from the perspective of, I don't want this to cost me more money mm-hmm. or more hassle or more time. So we don't hear much from horse players on it. They don't know much about it. They don't stay up on it all that much, but they want to benefit from the outcome. And those who may lose a little bit of money because of the extra cost associated with pulling it together, they're the ones who are really trying to fight it and make sure they end up with the best possible outcome with the least possible cost. Those are all very natural occurrences. But I, I think that was also one of the reasons that it was quite a contentious issue is that from the get-go, there were question marks in relation to the source of the funding for HISA. How has that been developing? And and still is, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not gone away. Nope. Um you know, we, we put this out uh, January of 2020. We put a piece out, you know, how, are, how is our um, greater business going to cover the costs of increased regulation, increased oversight, increased testing, in competition, out of competition, investigations thereof? How are we going to do that? One way we can help do that is if we grow the business, right? Focus on growing the pie, not shrinking the pie. And if, if people have been accustomed to racing, shrinking, business declining, focusing on purse supplements and casino revenue and HHR revenue and all sorts of things, it's very easy to kind of uh, fight and claw for every, every dollar and penny thereof and, and to not have someone take that away from you. The best way for that not to be an issue is if you grow your business. If you get more people wagering if you make your product more attractive for wagering. And, and so now basically getting into some of the dollars and cents of this, you know, in, in two years ago, three years ago, we had about 10 billion in handle nationwide. It was more a little more than that, of course. And, and this year we're up to 12 billion and that's great. But let's just say that the total amount that is held as takeout is $2 billion or roughly 20%. If we can take that business and go from $2 billion held in takeout to $2.5 billion held in takeout without actually increasing takeout, but we increased our business, we have more people participate, that's fantastic. That will go a long way towards helping cover increased costs. Does it mean purses rise exponentially, without control, without oversight. No, you know, we just can't take all the money that comes in and give it to owners. Mm-hmm. You have to, you have to build a holistic business that is modern oversight in the present day, has the right levels of testing, has the confidence of its customers and all its participants. We don't have that right now. Uh, and we need to keep striving for it. A lot of people who've been doing this for a lot of years, I think, have been frustrated with this process because they think things have been fine. We, we've been just ticking along. Um, they've been doing a job for a long time, and this is all you know, some of them may know. 
there are different ways to do it, and I'm really heartened for the future. I think this is long-term net a good thing. It's a positive, and we need to keep building on it as best we can. I think when you described it as a holistic solution, I think when you are growing the business and funding that federal oversight, you are in turn giving customers and fans confidence to continue participating or playing because of the, you know, they can see the the rules being implemented. They can, you know, benefit from that increased level of communication. So even though perhaps, like you said, you wouldn't see any increase in, in purses, but when you are looking at inside and outside point of view in terms of us as industry participants as well as outside, I think in general, it's a tremendously beneficial thing, initiative, concept, however we want to coin it, that can allow us to actually move forward as an industry. Yeah, I completely um, look at it as, you know, w- w- this is about investing in our future. Uh, and too much, I, I think, you know, too often we get focused on on the next paycheck. And for, for very good reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very natural to, to be that. But, but someone needs to be thinking long term and, you know, for the for the greater benefit. And, and frankly, you know, I, I think that a lot in Kentucky as a Kentucky resident for the last four years. And, you know, I, I look around, I, I can you know, drive a mile and I'm, I'm in the middle of, of farm farmland. And, you know, things do matter more here. And this is why I think a lot of major power from, you know, long term ingrained Kentucky interests were very supportive of of the authority. Uh, long-term breeders and owners, it, it's very important to to have um, to have this sort of support uh, at the federal level. It's it's an investment in our future, and I think we should treat it as such. Yeah, I, I believe so as well. One of the other um, points of chat or topics of conversation for today has to do with how it just kind of coined. How do we look at ourselves as an industry, and how do we have outsiders or perhaps fans or people thinking about engaging with horse racing uh, look at us and that's possibly of course the main story or one of the biggest stories in uh, 2021 that was that of the Kentucky Derby results now the story is ever evolving and uh, you know of course most people know including that positive Beth Amethyst's own test for Medina Spirit and then Medina Spirit's untimely passing Churchill Downs incorporated sanctions on uh, trainer Bob Bafford. How do you think that this whole process, this ever ongoing, you know, development in terms of what is, you know, what has happened, what has been said, how do you feel like this is continuing to influence us as an industry, you know, inside of it, as well as from those standing outside or aren't working within horse racing? Take racing's most recognizable face combine it with racing's most recognizable race and put a controversy in between the two of them. And it tends to be, I think a net negative for everyone involved. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, uh, for, for so many reasons, for so many reasons, right. Cause it, it calls into question past results, no matter how uh, clean or w- without, uh, without question, there may have been in the past. It, it's just unfortunate has been and continues to be. Um, I don't, 
you know, the, the biggest loser here is the perception around racing that, 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 that spreads um, across uh, the spectrum. And it's why I think Churchill Downs has been so forceful in their approach. Um, very understandably so. Um, I, I, where it is most frustrating, particularly for those of us that have been in the industry for a long time, is that the communication from the regulatory side has been so poor. Uh, it's been so lacking. Um, while the medication that is in the mix here is typically not, you know, very troublesome. It's not. It's not a banned substance. It's just controlled on race day. Mm-hmm. Right? It's controlled fourteen days out. This is not some mass doping controversy, as much as it may have been uh, initially played that way by some in in certain circles of the press. Um. But we have communicated poorly about this as a sport from the start. We have a history of that. We have a history of very, very poor communication. Um, this affects, frankly, the authority that we talked about previously, right? You know, American racing does not have a history of being open and transparent, let alone just positively communicative uh, in, in our modern history. And that's bad for everyone involved. Um, that the accused in this case has basically dictated all of the public airing of the facts for the, for the most part is, is I think, pretty troublesome. Uh, and it is symptomatic of issues like this across the sport that, that, we've, that, that, that we've had for a long time. So we need to communicate better. We need to be far more open with our customers and be a little more straightforward. And I, I think the, the more that anyone in racing is just, you know, leaning straight into reality and the truth and being you know, far more transparent. It, it Transparency benefits the greatest number of stakeholders. And the decades of missteps on the part of the, the greater racing, um, racing organizations and industry has, has led us to this. Um, and so, so when you have the biggest faced and the biggest race and a controversy, uh, it, it, you know, we, we can't afford to continue uh, going in this same direction. So I do think things would be different under a, under a federal authority in, the, in, in this particular case to some degree. I can tell you this, though, also, Naomi, there, there were things in the HISA regulations um, that have been floated that, you know, say, you know, when the first uh, sample comes back, the authority doesn't have to report it publicly. Right. You know, they, they can wait until the B sample comes back. It's like, oh, you know, but that purse money is being held. People will start talking. Mm-hmm. Word will get out. It is just never good to take the less transparent approach. And we, we, we just need to be better on that front altogether. And uh, I, I hope that we'll have seen the error of our ways in, in, from the commission standpoint on this and, and publicly and, and uh, start, start making changes. Well, so the example that you give is actually tying in quite neatly with my question to you is, do you think that perhaps the lack of communication can be due to certain procedural requirements as well as legal action that might be taken? And hence, the entities involved are playing their cards close to their chest because of those requirements or impending legal actions? I mean, if you... If every action you take is, you know, 
based around the fear that there may or may not be a lawsuit. I mean, those things didn't happen and the suits came anyway. Right. So, so um, it, it it's, seems kind of foolish to, to tiptoe around it, you know, when, when really I think we, we could devise a new way again, new for America, not new for the rest of the racing world to, um, to present these, these cases and this information. I mean, you know, I, I think about the process in Hong Kong. And again, we're talking about a place where they're, the operator and the regulator are the same entity, the Hong Kong Jockey Club. But it's very clear. And they do it because the business demands it, the customers demand it. It's very straightforward. Horse test positive, a process starts. So that's the A uh, sample, right? That's the first right. test. Yes. Yeah. There's a whole range of things that happen immediately. There is a uh, an investigation starts. An initial release comes out publicly that says the stewards were alerted that this was a positive sample. Here are the steps that have been taken. We will send the B sample out. When we know where that's going, we'll let you know. When the B sample result comes back, we report that publicly here's the steps, here's when the inquiry is going to be held, here's the investigation that's being held. It's incredibly open, transparent. It's meant to, um, it's meant to reassure all of the participants. Transparency does benefit the accused, right? It puts out very clearly where we are in the process, uh, and, and it, it's meant to benefit everyone. Um, people are going to talk regardless, right? We, anyone who's been around the sport knows that. That's going to happen. Mm-hmm. But uh, we, we experience that problem today where a positive sample comes back, the prize money is held, and the second and third place finishers and fourth and fifth in some cases, they know someone's tested positive because the sample's been held up. Uh, or because the the prize money has been held up, and people start talking, and this happens, it affects uh, other races, right? I, I know people who who have had horses. Uh, a positive sample came back on a winner. Um, the second place finisher is you know is is in the queue essentially to get promoted for the win, and had entered a maiden race. They require that horse to scratch. Because it might not meet the condition. Correct. But no one else knows that. And so why do we have this maiden showing up in a uh, in an allowance race or being then forced to go to an allowance race still as a maiden? And it's like we're uh, we're tiptoeing around reality here because um, the process hasn't come back. Well, you can have due process. And you can have transparent due process. Um, we, we, we seem to have embraced opaque due process more than we have transparent due process. And I understand, I'm not a lawyer. I understand uh, the legal rights of everybody involved. But um, we, um, we have, have seemingly found a very convenient way of depressing the value that transparency provides to all parties and ignore the damage that rumor and conjecture do, not just to the people involved in the process, but to all the customers along the way. And we need to be focused on making racing better for our customers. 
that will have positive benefits for everyone else who invests in the sport or who is a taker, who's a participant, uh, who is paid a wage from this sport. You know, the more we make it better for the people who put their money up, the better it's going to be for those who get money out of racing. So what do you think needs to happen to initiate to in, initiate a change that will bring that about or to actually see that process become more transparent? I really do think that we have a chance here with the authority, with the federal authority to to embrace this a little bit more. One of the things that I think has been very frustrating in these early months of the authority is that they have not been communicating on their own. Now, I get it. They had an interim director. Um, it took a while to get the board together. They're focused on the rules. But you need to communicate. And you need to, to, to reassure people that, that you've got this and this, this is something you're working on and, and, and you're being very open and transparent in a public fashion. Um, I, I think the opportunity will be there for the authority to adopt that uh, approach when these things happen. It needs to be better than what we have right now, disparate commissions that hold back information for any number of reasons. And um, there's just too many examples to give. It, it, it crosses many, many different state lines and the issues that we have in that regard. Um, but this is a chance, I think, where, where federal oversight has the potential to really improve the way in which information is shared about these things. The concern being that they haven't done a really good job communicating up to this point as things are coming together. And the greatest communicator about the authority up to this point has been the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency, which is no longer going to be the enforcement agent for uh, for the authority. So that's been a bit of a, I'd say, a, a very substantial roadblock up to this point, um, which is unfortunate, and there's many reasons for it, I suppose, but um, that's something they're going to have to make sure they, they get right, um, which many commissions, for many other understandable reasons, have not been getting right for a long time. Well, so here's hoping that when HISA kind of really gets rolling, that they will be able to possibly implement those changes and, and really allow a general kind of, I wouldn't say rule or regulation, but perhaps that is exactly what it's going to be, that would increase that burden of transparency on the, the stewarding procedures among the different tracks in the United States. And I think a theme that we've been seeing throughout our chat, we've been chatting for a little while now, is transparency, is communication. That does bring us to my next question, um, which is in relation to uh, the Breeders' Cup Juvenile Turf, uh, obviously in 2021, where we had a favorite, Modern Games, uh, end up running for prize money purposes only. And I know that the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation has looked into this. I know that this is, of course, something that you know a fair bit about as well. What do you think could have been done differently on the day and perhaps in the aftermath? Yeah, um, it is. It's pretty wild uh, that that happened the way it did. Um, you know, in that there on on our biggest stage. Uh, in, in, in a championship-defining race, that there were two races run. Uh, there was the race for owners and the race for the betters. Uh, 
the difference between the two races is that the race for owners was pure. The race for betters was impacted by the presence of modern games. Um, but the public couldn't do anything about modern games. It is fundamentally unfair. It is actually, uh, you know, the, the rules themselves have created a grossly unfair situation for customers to permit a race with two different outcomes for two different groups of participants. So while the rules were followed to as they were written in California, I don't think there's any, any question about that. While there may have been mistakes made along the way in terms of scratching modern games and, and, Again, there were, um, but while the rule to to run him for purse only was implemented appropriately, the rule existing at all is wrong. And I think everyone involved would have done very um, would have acted differently if uh, the the requirement was to make the race completely non wagering to refund all of the intra-race bets, win, play, show, exact, try, super, and declare it an all for the multi-race bets. And that there would have been a, a, a multi-million dollar refund uh, and, and just run the race purely without wagering. That would have been the fairest outcome for everyone involved, undoubtedly. Uh, we have to promote the interests of customers to be on the equivalent of every other stakeholder in the process. The horses, the horsemen, and the horse players. Um, Their interests matter here too, because those horses aren't coming to race if there aren't horse players. The horsemen aren't showing up with the horses to race if there aren't horse players, Um, at least in this country. So uh, I I do think that, that there are other ways to evolve the rules to do that. Very hopeful that New York will eliminate the coupled entry requirement altogether. And that's been a, a big uh, discussion point. Mm-hmm. And one, I, I wrote a letter in support to the New York State Gaming Commission from TIF on this and said specifically, um, yeah, it'll be great for business. You know, it's, it's a good move for handle to eliminate coupled entries, but it will also decrease the number of opportunities to run races for purse only, right? Because in New York, it's a place where, um, you know, if, if the solid one is scratched and the 1A is still allowed to run, one the solid one's a late scratch, then the 1A runs for purse only. And I know why that is. There's a, there's a, a warped thought that that's protective of, of customers, but it actually hurts other customers to do that. So, um, it probably should have been a, a total non-wagering race. It's not the Breeders' Cup's fault. Frankly, it's not the CHRB's fault that the rule was implemented the way in which it was. There were obviously mistakes that were made before that. Um, I think the, the the you know that has been well covered, and I would love to see you know more confidence come back to the commission there, uh, to the board. Uh, from players, but you just have to make decisions that are going to yield those sorts of outcomes. And uh, making a, a change in that regard, I think, would be one area 
um, where, where they could gain a little more customer confidence. Do you believe that this event as you know, unfortunate as it was, will be a trigger for these different states to revisit their current regulations like you just highlighted in New York? I, I certainly hope so, Naomi. Um, if they're not, then they basically happen in vain, right? Um, if you say, oh, the chances of this happening are slim to none. Uh, now, you've got to be evolving your rule book. And New York is a very good example of, of this, but all of the states, if you, if you spend some time in the rule book of these states, you can very easily pick out antiquated rules. And I believe it's in New York. There's a line that basically says that if, if a horse is unruly at the start uh, and, and they, they can't get the horse into the gate, the horse may be placed outside the gate and behind the line at the, roughly verbatim. Technically within the rules of New York racing today, they could run a race at Aqueduct. They can't load this horse in the gate. They're going to take him out. They're going to put him on the side of the gate. And as long as he stays behind a hypothetical line back in the day, there used to be an actual white line, mind you. Uh, that horse could be allowed to start. That could happen today, hypothetically, in New York. I don't think it would. Because yeah, that's that sounds bonkers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's within the rules that that, that could happen. I, I think Maryland actually has a very similar rule in place. Uh, that just shows that the commissions have allowed the rule book to devolve uh, and then some of these things really need to be kept after for you know every year and really updating them and, and fine-tuning them and, and making changes. It's not easy. It's not fun. Um, but it has to be done. And again, if we have more wagering eyes on our sport, more wagering dollars on our sport, more resources and more reasons to improve these measures. We grow the betting business on racing, the benefits trickle down to everybody else. Well, let's hope that indeed, even though it's not a fun process, like you said, there will be, you know, a set of fresh eyes going over certainly some of the rules to see how they can be updated for the current times and, and the current environment that we find ourselves in. Now, we've covered a lot of ground, uh, seemingly highlighting a fair few of the challenges or possible areas of improvement for the USA racing industry. But I also want to have a look at some of the areas that perhaps are done well, or you look towards with, you know, particular happiness or pride, or you find, you know, to be a source of, you know, I guess a smile on your face. For me, it's, it's all the, the great work that's been done in America on aftercare. I think America probably leads the world, the, the greater racing world, in its aftercare initiatives, uh, whether it be organizations or entities like the Thoroughbred Aftercare Alliance, all of the organizations it accredits, Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation, Old Friends, Retired Racehorse Project. Um, Beyond the Wire. Yeah, I mean, you name it, uh, Naomi. The, these, 
we put our minds to it back in 2008 that we have to do better. And we really, really, really have to do better. And we're doing better. Uh, we've put a lot of money behind it as a sport. A lot of private individuals have put a lot of money behind it. We've put together processes, procedures. Um, you know, the Retired Racehorse Project, um, the, the Thoroughbred Makeovers. Um, all of this has been, uh, we, we did not have much of this 10, well, really more than 10, almost 15 years ago. Um, and, and what we did have was very different. So it, it is proof that we can put our minds to it and really create something and a process. It doesn't mean we're, 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 we're thriving on it on every level. Mind you, there are still plenty of cracks that we need to fill. Um, but monumental steps have been taken. And I think America's approach to aftercare is, is pretty close to a top level international standard and gives us a great opportunity to do more. I think you know, we've also been doing this very well here in Kentucky with, with horse country. It's been very tough during the pandemic, but finding ways to bring people and experience thoroughbreds, the process, the farms, um, the, the, the life cycle of these beautiful properties, uh, of, of bringing horses and stallions and foals. They've done a very, very, very good job of that and trying, you know, what did they do? They copied. They're trying to make it like the bourbon trail, do it for horses, horse country. Uh, they've done a fantastic job on that too. And we need to continue to find ways to introduce people and horses. Um, to go along with that, I think, you know, the, the, the shortcoming there is that, that people who are in the day, day in and day out process of racing need to make sure they are open and transparent with the public as much as possible about horses. We, we need far more content. We need more people to interact socially, to adopt uh, platforms that communicate about their horses more. Um, those sorts of things are good for our business and good for the future. And, uh, you know, we, we uh, you can always be improving in that area. So, um, but that, that to me is a shining example of what we can do if we really set our mind to it. The Jockey Club's been a, a huge driver of that to their credit. Um, and, and assorted foundations thereof uh, have been really exceptional. So we have gotten that right. We continue to. We need to, right? Because racing social license is continually under threat. We need to update that as the conditions of our modern society change as mm -hmm. well. We need to, to, to keep pace with that. So if, if, if we can be doing that, um, if we can be defending our social license, uh, if we can be looking after our horses from um, birth to natural uh, retirement from racing, second, third careers thereafter, um, we can be looking after our customers the same too, right? And you know, every business should be doing that. Uh, and I think um, you know, aftercare is a really good example of that. Well, I love that you highlighted how we've come along heaps and bounds throughout the last decade is definitely when you said it you can't see it. i'm sitting here smiling nobody can see because we're audio only um but to me when you were mentioning the social license of horse racing and the changing 
cultural uh, perspective, uh, perspe- perception on the use of horses uh, for purposes of a sport, it is changing. But I also believe that because there is certain changes within, uh, let's say, the general culture in the United States, but also across the globe, I think that also presents us with an opportunity, namely, like you said, to get people closer to horses and get them touching those noses because I feel like nowadays the majority of young children won't as often see an equine up close because in general you know we we don't have horses in front of carriages that often anymore we don't have horses used as workforces uh, you know to farm the land like we would have decades ago We, we don't have all of that anymore so perhaps even though the social license is indeed being you know, drawn into question on a daily basis. It also, the fact that culture is changing could also provide us with that chance to say, hey, come and see how we look after those animals. Come and touch them, come interact with these, you know, amazing horses that will make you feel different, that could brighten your day. Because I know from a personal point of view, that's what my interaction with horses has always done for me. That even if you, you know, you're a little bit stressed about something or, you're worried and you go and interact with horses that kind of falls away because they force you to be there and present in the moment because you know they're so reflective in a way that they mirror to you how you are they mirror that back to you so if you're calm and happy they tend to give that back to you and and I think it's such a beautiful and healing energy that they have that I'm hoping that we continue to introduce people uh, to horses to thoroughbreds of course in particular because I think they're incredibly bright incredibly willing to work with us as humans and I'm hoping that more and more people will be able to you know benefit from that even like you said in their aftercare lives these are so such talented animals that want to learn and want to progress no matter what they're doing um, I was a dressage rider myself before going in horse racing a lot of horses love learning new things um, I applied those dressage principles often when I was riding thoroughbreds and they liked learning and I still think that in that aftercare situation, that is something that we can greatly benefit from as well, that they are that flexible, they are that talented, they can, you know, obviously physicality permitting, do a lot of different jobs within, you know, the the kind of sport horse industry that there is, or just hobbies, or just, you know, riding outside in the forest, I love doing that myself. So yeah, it, it's definitely an area that I'm, I'm so glad to see that, you know, you've taken particularly affinity to, and then you're looking at with, with pride. What else is it perhaps that you love yourself most about the horse racing industry? Well, um, I've been incredibly blessed to really get all over the world, um, have friends essentially on six continents, right? Um, uh, Talking racing, friends in Argentina, South Africa, Australia, uh, Hong Kong, Japan, um, throughout Europe. Uh, it's just, uh, it's a wonderful thing. Um, you know, when I was asked, uh, you know, what, what did I see my future occupation to be graduating from eighth grade? Uh, I put world traveler and loved horse racing, but, um, have been able to see the world as a result of it. And, um, the international competition aspect is, is really, I just love it. And, and I think it's, it's racing at its finest. I know there's, you know, it's not all that. Uh, but in at, 
across the sport, like there's many different elements of racing. And look, I've, I've spent plenty of time. I was the last track announcer in the history of Maynard Downs, which is a small little racetrack at just outside of Austin, Texas. And Austin, Texas is a very nice city. Maynard Downs was not a very nice racetrack. Um, I, I have seen racing in, in, in some pretty low spots. Um, they had a lot of color. Um, a character. But uh, <laughs> the international uh, competition, when, when you get international bloodlines intersecting with international form lines on a global stage for a lot of money, I just, you know, I love trying to pick winners in those races. Uh, I was very taken by the racing in Dubai years ago. Uh, I've been to 13 World Cups, uh, probably a media member for nine or 10 of those, wow. maybe 11. Yeah. Uh, I was very taken by the, the racing in Dubai for early days and was just fascinated that you had horses from the U.S., Turkey and South Africa and uh, not just the UAE, but from Saudi Arabia. And you'd occasionally have a horse from Kuwait or Bahrain or Oman, uh, India. India sent horses to the carnival a couple times and won, mind you. Uh, I remember, remember the horse mystical. She was, she was something. Um, saw her run on world cup night back in 07, I believe it was. Um, uh, it's, it's just, you know, I, I love that aspect of it. And, you know, the breeders cup was almost, you know, always a rider cup like phenomenon. I think that is now going to expand to basically being the U S versus Europe versus Japan. Now, uh, I don't think you're ever going to stop the Japanese influence after what happened in Del Mar, they are going to want to come and compete and participate and they will be successful. Uh, so I was really heartened as much as I, I loved loves only you and bet on her. Uh, I did not bet on Marsh Lorraine. I do happen to think, however, that possibly Marsh Lorraine's win may have been a little more meaningful because it showed that, Japanese dirt form can hold up if the circumstances are right and take a chance and let's see what happens. So I think that's very meaningful for the Breeders' Cup and the Breeders' Cup has been a, a tremendous source. They've also been great in trying to build out South America. They've been responsive to South Africa uh, and trying to open things up there. But um, international racing is is kind of the, the culmination of, of everything. Um, I just love intersecting global form lines. It, it, it helps you understand so much about the sport and learn. And so those big international race days, be them Hong Kong, Australia, around the Melbourne Cup, um, obviously Dubai, Saudi now makes it really interesting uh, this time of year. And the, the Dubai Carnival's underway and Ascot and Goodwood. It, it's just that that's really what I love most of all and love going to those meetings and, and, and the, the thrill and the atmosphere is, is second to none. So uh, that, that's, that's my favorite part of the sport. Just tying back with the, the betting part. I, I think a lot of people didn't have Marsh Lorraine in the British. Correct. Correct. She paid about $101 around yeah. about 50 to one shot. I think a lot of people weren't tied on with her, but it, yeah, very interesting that you highlight her being the more important one because of the, holding up that Japanese dirt form, whereas Love's Only You was that first ever Japanese Breeders' Cup winner. So I was particularly happy because of that, but I guess nobody really expected them to then go on and get another one. Yeah, I certainly did not. 
No, not that quickly. <laughs> I think none of us did. But talking about the, the international form lines and, and the sportsmanship involved, I think that for me has always been one of the biggest attractions that these global carnivals indeed intra- attract horses from across the globe. And then trainers and owners being keen on putting their charges into those races and saying, yes, let's take it on, let's try it. I mean, the first one that comes to mind where I thought sportsmanship was quite a thing was Mishrif in 2021 beating, you know, some of the best American dirt horses and the fact that John Galston was like, yeah, we're going to try this. Why not? That to me is terrific. And that makes for incredible stories, incredible racing. And, and it's definitely something that has always attracted me that when as a fan, even just not working, but as a fan, you're attending or you're watching, you really are looking at some of the best horses in the world, taking each other on and, and yeah, um, connections I'm, not I'm, shying away from that. Yeah, I'm looking at a picture right now of uh, Highland Reel that I have here in my office, uh, who's one of my favorite globe trotters uh, of the past. And, and we can name a couple others like him, Flincher, yeah. uh, Cirrus Desaig uh, comes to mind. Um, he, you know, these are, um, they're real stalwarts of the international scene. And, um, I, I, I love a good losing performance, if that makes sense, Naomi. I love a horse that, that I love looking at a performance and say, man, he didn't win, but what a heck of a race. And it was, uh, Highland Reels, um, second try at the Hong Kong vase. He lost to Satono Crown, Japanese horse. And Highland Reel did everything but win. He ran, you know, he just, he ran out there and just tried to bottom them out as he normally did. Love that type of horse. And he was one of my favorites. Um, but it was because, you know, he, he danced so many dances in so many places. And, and we saw a campaign this year from Love's Only You, wins in Hong Kong in, in April, back to Japan, she ran in Dubai, of course, in March, ran very well there, went to Hong Kong, won the QE2 Cup, which was a bit of a, um, it was a, a it wasn't as, uh, as tough a renewal mm-hmm. as, as it had been in previous years. But then to come to America, win at the Breeders' Cup, then go back to Hong Kong and win the Hong Kong Cup. I was actually, I was against her. You know, we had that conversation. Uh, we, we, we did the, yeah, the, the show together on that. And I was against her. I, I wanted to beat her and she proved me wrong. And I'll, I'll never, never begrudge that. You know, you, you go out there and, and do the opposite of what, what I projected. Fair dinkum as the Aussies would say. Um, so uh, th- those, those to me are the things that make racing great. But of course that's not every day in racing. We need to appreciate those opportunities and, and embrace them. But, uh, you know, the, the horsemen and women uh, here in America, um, very hardworking people and um, the backbone of the sport. And, um, you know, we, we need to find ways to support them, support how racing is meaningful for our land, for agribusiness. Um, because it's, it's not all those, those great international race days, but, but that is really what I love most of all. I think, I think it's easy to, to love those global trotting stories. Cause I think Highland Real didn't he end up racing in, what's like, not even, not 10, but like a lot of different countries, you know, in Europe and then yes. as well as Hong Kong. Didn't he race in Dubai as well? Like he went For everywhere. Sure. Australia. Yeah. He went to Australia too. Correct. Uh, he, um, he won a Cox. 
did he win a Cox Plate? Oh gosh, I'm. I'm... He ran against Wings. I, I wonder if he won a Cox Plate or not. I I can look this up though. Yes, he did win I'm, a Cox Plate. I'm... There you go. Okay. He did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm really quickly here uh, looking up his record because you know when you're on the top of your head I remember he won two Hong Kong vases because I saw him in Hong Kong but he went down under as well won a Cox play ran against Wings I think he was third against her oh, what a horse in- incredible performance uh, a performer that just he didn't he didn't you know it, he wasn't dependent on any track conditions or on anything he just went and, and got out there and did his thing, but yes, like you he, he he didn't win a Cox Plate, did he? He ran in a Cox he Plate. He 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 ran third behind Wings in the Cox Plate. Mm-hmm. Um, well beaten, mind you. Oh yeah, you're right. That's me yeah. reading quickly. Um, but, I but wanted look, him it, to win a Cox Plate. Clearly, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it goes it goes to show you though. Um, I mean, he's a horse. He won in in England. He won it at Arlington. Uh, he won the Secretariat uh, right at Arlington. Yeah. Um, he he dominated there. Then went down third in the Cox Plate, uh, and then went on to Hong Kong, where he um, he won his first of two Hong Kong vases. Um, yeah, just a, a really fun horse, and and those are the horses that I think uh, you know you you just have to love them. Yeah, those those are the ones that you fall in love with that come back year after year. And I think like when you're looking on the more local levels, like for example, me being on the Maryland circuit, I still have those local campaigners that I very much love coming back. You know, your your allowance runners or perhaps some of your restricted stake horses that are still doing well and, and seem to be doing better than ever. For me, a cord maker comes to mind. I think he's now a seven-year-old. Don't quote me on his age. They're trained by Rodney Jenkins. And I know Victor Carrasco, who is his regular jockey absolutely adores him and those you know those kind of more veteran runners i do love love seeing them come back and then do so well at court maker i think just on the bounces won a couple of stakes last year whilst already being a little bit older that those kind of stories i very much love still as well or if you're looking at those great mares that are campaigned well into their fourth or fifth year of life to see them develop and then go to stud and then see how they're you know, how their family line continues is definitely something that really attracts me as well. But Pat, I feel like I've taken up uh, plenty of your time. Uh, We've covered a variety of topics. I think we've uh, definitely been able to give all the listeners a good overview of perhaps what is currently going on in the industry, what you are working on with your team at the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation knows what people kind of need to know or can look out for and uh yeah i hope everyone found it useful and of course pat i couldn't thank you enough for your terrific insight it really is a pleasure you know asking you all these questions and and listening to how you lay it out in a way that allows us all to understand what's going on oh thanks Naomi. i appreciate the opportunity and it was great to have this discussion and, and lay a lot of it out and um Keep up the good work. Congrats on the Eclipse Award, um, which is just a, a remarkable accomplishment and, and one that uh, I think you should be uh, tremendously proud of. Thank you so much. I feel very fortunate that I was able to be part of such a you know such a strong team, including Peter Thomas Fornichel, who came up with the idea, and of course Matthew Taylor of At the Races, who you know pulled it all together with the layout. So yes, very fortunate, and let's hope that we can continue telling these stories. I mean, Pat, I think you highlighted it as well 
I feel like as media or as communicators, as I know you coin yourself as being one as well, communication specialist, perhaps a better term to use, I feel like it's it's our privilege and our, and our duty to put these stories out there so everyone within and outside of the industry can, you know, read or listen and really experience these events or important moments and that we're all reminded of why we love this sport so much. And and why we fight for, um, you know, consistent improvements. So as much as people bristle at change, and, and I hear it plenty of times, um, we only want change because we want it to be better. We want it to keep going. We want it to be around. And, you know, just, you know, the, the natural inclination of a lot of people in this sport to reject a change, to bristle at it, to turn away from it really needs to be, um, we need to move on uh, from that. And we need to find ways to accept uh, positive change, um, the, the challenges that come with it, and the, that this change is hopefully going to assure a more sustainable future for the sport. No, I, I completely second that and, and just wanted to add that, you know, change for the sake of change isn't what we're after. It's it's change Correct. based on like you're putting forward with your white papers, data and principles that are already applied in other racing jurisdictions that could aid us in our quest to allow the sport to flourish and, and grow for the next, you know, century or more to come. 100%. Oh, Pat, thank you so much. And uh, hopefully we get to catch up uh, in person again soon. Thanks, Naomi. I sure know I got lots out of listening to Pat explaining a lot of the different regulations as well as what's needed uh, to invoke change and what's currently being done. So I very much enjoyed it and learned from it. And I hope that you did as well. If you aren't doing so already, do go and follow Pat Cummings on Twitter. He shares his views as well as what the Thoroughbred ID Foundation is up to. That's at Pat Cummings. So Pat, P-A-T, Cummings, C-U-M-M-I-N-G-S, T-I-F. So capital T-I-F at the end to find him on Twitter. And of course, you can also go to the Thoroughbred ID Foundation website, which is actually called racingthinktank.com. So racingthinktank.com to have a look at some of the research that they've already conducted and what were their findings as well as explanation of certain things that they are working on. I very much found it interesting. You can have a look as well who's all on the board. Definitely reads like a who's who in racing. A lot of, you know, very, very dedicated industry professionals that are on the TIF board of directors. And as Pat already highlighted, of course, uh, Craig Burnick being the president and chief uh, executive officer of Glen Hill Farm was uh, the one that was uh, pivotal towards uh, setting up this uh, wonderful think tank advocacy group, which is founded upon hoping to improve our beloved sport of racing. Now, aside from that, hope everyone's staying safe, healthy and well. I do believe we have another snowstorm hitting us uh, here in the uh, Nova, Northern Virginia as well, Maryland area this weekend. So, uh, yeah, fingers crossed that uh, everyone stays safe and watch out for those uh, icy roads. And, uh, of course, hoping to uh, have you all join me again next week. Undoubtedly, yet another terrific guest that will be joining us. 